And we're now in chapter 7. This morning, I got down to Romans chapter 7 and in verse 13. And there's no way I can go back and summarize what I've said. But again, I've got this whole teaching on Romans. I've got a book entitled Grace, the Power of the or maybe it's the gospel, the power of grace, or grace, the power of the gospels. Anybody remember what it is? It's good. And it summarizes the first nine and a half chapters of the book of Romans, and it's really, really good. So I've got a lot of material that you can get that will go into more depth. I've been running through this relatively quickly, but I had a number of people come to me, and this is just really changing people's lives to find out these truths about what has happened. Most of us don't understand what God has done for us. And there's no way you're going to be able to use it if you don't understand what has happened. One of the major points I was making last night and then this morning is that you are dead to sin. That that old sin nature has been crucified. It is dead, gone. You are not an old sinner saved by grace. But you were an old sinner and you got saved by grace and you are now the righteousness of God. That's your nature. That's who you are. And you have all of his ability and all of his power on the inside. And the key to the Christian life, there's many things, but this is really one of the main things is you've got to change your identity. If you see yourself the way that the Bible talks about you, if you see yourself as Jesus is, so are you in this world, then you will begin to act differently. And many people are continuing to just struggle and go along because they aren't expecting much. After all, they're only human. Well, see, you aren't only human. One third of you is wall-to-wall Holy Ghost. So we've been talking about that. And that's what all of these verses are talking about. And beginning in uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 14, there's a passage of scripture here that is problematic. You know, it's kind of like Peter said over in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, when he was talking about Paul, he said, our beloved brother Paul also says these things and writes of them in which there are some things hard to be understood. <laughs> so even Peter said sometimes, man, it's hard to figure out, Paul. This is one of those passages that has been problematic for me, but I really believe that what I'm going to share with you tonight is the proper take on it. Uh, and there, but there are some things, I mean, he says some things that look like they are in direct contradiction to what he just said in Romans chapter six, but this has been taken. And I think one of the reasons we have so much problem with this passage of scripture is because it's been used and we've heard it used so many times to describe what people think is the normal Christian life, the way that it's supposed to be. And they say that even the apostle Paul was struggling and saying, oh, wretched man that I am. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. And they think that this is just the way that the Christian life is destined to be, that you've got to be semi-defeated, that there is no such thing as victory and joy and peace in this life. I think that's a misinterpretation of these verses. So let's look at this in Romans chapter 7. And in verse, uh, well, let me just go back and read verse 13, because this is important to where we're going. In verse 13, he says, was then that which is good made death unto me. And that's talking about the Old Testament law, the standard of perfection that God gave. And he says, God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. 
And this is kind of a summary of all of the things that have been said. He started off by saying it's the gospel that's the power of God, Romans 1, 16. But immediately people started to say, but you've got to tell people about sin. You've got to tell them about how far short they've come. And he starts saying they have this intuitive knowledge. And then those who've heard the word are doubly accounted. And then he starts using the law and showing how the law was given to take away our deception that we could ever please God by our own personal actions. And so he's been making that point and that's kind of where he ends right here in the 13th verse. And then he begins to say this in Romans chapter seven, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual but I'm carnal, sold under sin. And again, he's going to say some things in these next verses that people think that this is the way Paul is proclaiming that after him writing half of the New Testament, after him walking with the Lord, seeing multiple people raised from the dead, here he is still this schizophrenic Christian trying to do good but failing and stuff. And they, they think that he's describing the way that his life is going. But notice this verse right here. He says, the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, Paul isn't saying this about his whole person. Matter of fact, look, that was in verse 14. Look at verse 18. I'll come back and read these other verses. But in verse 18, he says, for I know that in me, and then parentheses, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. Paul would have been inaccurate if he would have just said that there's no good thing in me. Because that's not true. When you get born again, your old sin nature is gone and you become the righteousness of God and you are now full of God in your spirit man. And so Paul here, I believe that this is the key to understanding it. In verse 14, he says, I am carnal, sold under sin. In verse 18, in me, that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. He's not talking about his born again part. He's not talking about his spirit. What he's doing is showing you the complete futility of ever trying to please God in your physical self, your carnal part of you. He uses the term flesh here, which I described this earlier, but flesh is talking about the non born again part of you, your body and your unrenewed mind. And he's just talking about, he's basically proving why the law Uh, condemned all of us and revealed to us that we could never be right with God in our own self because the law just pointed out your flesh. It showed you sin. It doesn't tell you that you're a brand new creature. It doesn't tell you that you're righteous. So this is him talking about not only a lost man, but even a Christian. If you are living in your flesh, if you are living by yourself, the inability of you to please God in your actions. Now, I made a point yesterday about your spirit was born in trespasses and sin, and you had a sin nature that compelled you to sin. And I mentioned briefly over in the sixth chapter that when your sin nature was gone, it left behind a body of sin is what it says in Romans chapter six, verse six. And so it left behind the unrenewed mind and things like that. But you could also say this, that your body and your mind have been tainted, polluted by that sin nature. The very fact that we had a sin nature has affected all of us. Not everybody agrees with this, but it's true. The very fact that we die is an indication that our body was affected 
by that sin nature because God did not make us to die. Death is a result of sin. And even though you get born again, and even though you renew your mind, unless Jesus comes back relatively soon, every person in this room is going to die. We still bear some of the effects of sin. You know, uh, the, the doctors will tell us that we only use a small percentage of our brain. I don't believe God gave us this brain to only use 10% or 12%, whatever they say. I believe that Adam was hitting on all cylinders. I believe that Adam used his brain. I mean, this guy was able to name every animal on the planet. And I assume that that talks about bugs and snakes and everything. I mean, it's just unbelievable nearly that a person could do that. Adam was a genius. I believe in evolution. I just don't believe we've evolved upward from slime to where we are today. I believe we've de-evolved. I believe that Adam was awesome. I believe that his body functioned. You know, they say that they don't know what the appendix was for. Well, I guarantee you God created it with a purpose and it may not be functioning today, but there is a purpose. There was a purpose for it. You can see this not only in us, but you can see it in the animal creation. We know from the scripture record that all of the animals were herbivores in the beginning. They didn't eat each other. That's the way that God created them to be. But after sin entered, it says in Romans chapter eight, that God made even the creature subject to vanity, talking about the sin that we put into the earth. And today we see animals destroying each other and poisonous animals and, uh, you know, things that hurt and all of this. God did not make them to be that way originally. And yet, even though Jesus has come and we are now redeemed in our spirit and we are totally wall to wall, Holy Ghost, there is still corruption in the animal creation. There's corruption in us. Men used to live 969 years. Now, somebody who lives 80, 90 years is considered old. And there's some people, you know, now believing for 120 years. But even at that, That's still a long ways from 960 years. I'm saying that even though your sin nature is gone and even though you can renew your mind, there are still effects of sin in your body and in your mind. We are so far removed from the purity that God intended us to. Now in your spirits, you're pure, but your flesh is still contaminated. And that's what these verses are are describing that a corrupted body that was corrupted by sin is incapable of glorifying God the way that it should. Now that doesn't mean that we're just doomed to failure because like Paul said, it can be Christ living through you. You can flow by the Holy Spirit. You can go beyond your limitations. You can get words of knowledge. God can show you things. Man, that's awesome. You know, we just had a situation where one of our employees quit and it was a person that we were depending on and, uh, you know, no, nothing bad, but they went to help their brother start a business and our TV department, they were wondering, what are we going to do? And a man who is qualified, I mean, he had applied two years before to come into our television department. He had been, just got tired of waiting. And so he just moved out here from the East coast and he walked in to our offices the day after this guy quit that we needed. And it turns out he's every bit as qualified. He's been doing all of the stories for CBN and all of these other things. And he walked in and Stephen 
recognized him. He used to work with him. And I mean, within 24 hours, this guy leaving, here's another guy. And the reason I bring that up is to say, did you know what? In the natural, we don't know things like that. But see, you can be led by the Holy Spirit. This man was led by the Holy Spirit out here and boom, within 24 hours of moving out here, he has a job and it's what he wanted. I was just talking to a Bible college student that they decided to move out here. And uh, I forget all of the details of it. But anyway, they went ahead and decided to move in March. They put their house on the market and they did all of these things. And it just happened last week or something that everything came through. But now they don't have to sell their house. Everything's already ready. They were already listening to the Holy Spirit. See, in the natural, we're limited. We can't do that. But you can go beyond yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can flow in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I've called people's names out before that I've never seen before. And I've said, your name is, and tell them what their name is. I've told them things about themselves. You can go beyond the limitations of this corrupted physical body. But the point that Paul is making is this body is corrupted. And so he's not talking about the born again spiritual part of him that is righteous. This is describing the inability of your carnal self to figure out, to fulfill God's will in your own strength and power. You need to get out of yourself and into God. That's what he's saying. So let's read it with that in mind. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, talking about the flesh part of him sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. But what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. You know, this is old English. It's confusing. I'm going to read to you here the Amplified in just a second. So I'll come back, but just muddle through this. In verse uh, 16, if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. You know, this 17th verse right here looks completely contrary to the points that he made in Romans chapter 6. Where he said, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? If you are going to have the resurrection life in you, you've got to know this, that your old man is crucified. It's dead and he's... And so when you see over here, he says, but it's sin dwelling in me. Well, which is it? Is he dead to sin or is sin still dwelling in him? This has led some people to believe that, well, you die to sin, but then it resurrects every morning and you got to die again. But I went through those verses over here where he says, you have to reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin one time, just as Jesus died unto sin. So which way is it? I believe, and this is a little bit of interpretation because it looks like a total contradiction on the surface, but I believe that again, it's the key he's saying, talking about in his flesh, in his carnal part. He's not talking about his born again part, but he's talking about the effects that this sin nature left behind. I dealt with that last night, that it left behind an unrenewed mind, a corrupted body. Your body doesn't function as well as God made it to. Your mind doesn't function as well as God originally intended us to. We've been taught all kinds of stuff. And that part of us, there is a part of us that has been polluted by sin and we will never in our physical body and in our mind be as pure as God intended us to until we go to heaven. Now in your spirit, you're pure, 
but in your body and in your mind, you're still dealing with the effects of sin. And I believe that that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the sin nature. He's talking about the residual old man. You know, let me just bring it down to a personal testimony. You know, I've been renewing my mind for a long time and I've come a long ways and I've seen God do some good things. But you know what? I don't ever get to a place where I don't have a carnal part of me that just sometimes wants to be bad. I have had people come up while I'm witnessing to them and spit in my face, just hatred for me and spit right in my face. And you know what? I didn't just say, oh, that blesses me so much. (laughs) You know what? There was a part of me that wanted to punch their lights out and just say, what right do you have to spit on me? I still have that part of me. I still get ticked off when people do things. But you know what? I've learned that that's not all there is to me. I know that there is a new person on the inside that is full of love and joy and peace. And I can control myself and I can choose to operate in love instead of anger. And so I still have, I could say just like Paul that, man, there's times that I just want to punch somebody's lights out. I've had people come up to me this week and say some things to me that it's, you know, it's not terrible, but it's just wrong. They're saying things that they shouldn't be saying. And you know, I just want to say who died and made you God. And I want to say something to them. And you know what? I've learned to bite my lip and not do it. But I'm saying I still have the tendencies. I don't know that you'll ever get over it, but you get to a place to where you just know that that's not God. That's not the way that he operates. And I can say just like Paul, that there's times that I'd just like to slap somebody, but instead I'll reach out and hug them. Say, man, I love you in the Lord. That's all that Paul's describing right here. Do y'all want to slap somebody? (laughs) Man, they were amen in that one down here. That's all that he's talking about right here. He's not saying that this is who he is as this mature Christian who wrote half of the Bible, that he just still goes out and, you know, does terrible sins and persecutes Christians and murders people every once in a while. He's just saying that there's still a part of him that still has some of these tendencies, not the sinful nature, but the sinful nature polluted and corrupted us in our attitudes, in our thoughts. And we still will have some of these things until the day we die, just like you will still die someday. Even though you've been born again in your spirit, your body's not saved. Your soul's not saved. Your spirit's the only part of you that is saved. Your body and soul have been paid for, but they aren't redeemed yet. The scripture says in Ephesians that we are waiting for the redemption of the purchased possession. Your body is purchased. Your soul is purchased, but it's not redeemed. The only part of you that is redeemed, cashed in, and you've got the full thing right now is your spirit. Your spirit is perfect. But in the flesh, you cannot please God. It says that very clearly in the eighth chapter, if I can talk fast enough to get down there. So in verse 18, he says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, it would have been incorrect if he would have just said in me dwells no good thing because Christ dwelled in him. His new self dwelled in him. It would have been incorrect. He's only talking about his physical part. This isn't talking about his whole person that he just can't do the good. He just can't do it on his own. He can't do it by his own natural ability. But as you submit to the Lord, you can overcome the lust of the flesh and you can live a life that is victorious. 
So I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is to present with me, is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that do I. Again, he's describing just a person in themselves. You know, here's another way of saying it. The Christian life isn't just difficult. It's impossible. It's impossible. You cannot live the way that Jesus told us to by your human self. When a person slaps you on one cheek, it is not human to turn the other and say, go ahead and hit me over here. It's not normal when somebody takes you to court and sues you that you say, here, you asked for 10,000. Let me give you 20,000. That's what the Bible says to do. If he takes your coat, give him your cloak also. Give him more than he asked for. If they compel you to go one mile, go with them too. Give them more than they asked for. That is not humanly possible. No person without the influence of the Holy Spirit on their life is going to do what Jesus said. And that's all that this is talking about. You cannot do what the word says. And the purpose of this is to confirm that the law was good, to show you your inability so you would quit trusting in yourself and throw yourself on the mercy of God. So in verse 20, now if, it, now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And again, this isn't talking about the sin nature, but the sin, the attitudes of sin. Matter of fact, I think it's the amplified. I'm going to read this in just a second. So maybe I'll bring this out, but it's the amplified or no, I was looking this up in, uh, in the Strong's concordance and then Strong's has a link over to Thayer's and Thayer's translates this. It's the principle of law that works in me, not the, not sin itself, but it was the principle of that law of sin, which works in me. In verse 22, he says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members. Members is talking about in his body, not in his born again spirit, but out here in the flesh, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, talking about his body. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Again, this is not Paul just describing his total existence. This is describing who we are on our own without Christ. But when you let Jesus live through you, Paul was able to turn the other cheek. He was able to raise the dead. He was able to evangelize the world. He was inspired to write half the Bible. He's still affecting us today. I'd say Paul was able to overcome this wretchedness on the inside of him. But he was still there in his flesh, not the nature anymore, but just the corruption and the pollution that was left in this flesh. And he answers that question about who shall deliver me. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And then he goes into the eighth chapter and the eighth chapter is just absolutely full of victory. And uh, so I'll get to that in just a minute. Let's go back and read this in the Amplified Bible. Or maybe this isn't the Amplified. It looks like King James. What happened to my Amplified? All right, here it is. All I had to do is push a button. 
So in verse 14, he says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a creature of the flesh, carnal, unspiritual, having been sold into slavery under the control of sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I am baffled, bewildered. I do not practice or accomplish what I wish, but I do the very thing that I loathe, which my moral instinct condemns. Now, if I do habitually what is contrary to my desire, that means that I acknowledge and agree that the law is good, morally excellent, and then I take sides with it. However, it is no longer I who do the deed, but the sin principle. See, again, that's distinguishing between just the sin nature, but the sin principle, in other words, the attitudes and stuff that sin taught, which is at home in me and has possession of me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot perform it. I have the intention and urge to do what is right, but no power to carry it out. For I fail to practice the good deeds I desire to do, but the evil deeds I do not desire to do are what I am ever doing. Now, if I do that, if I do what I do not desire to do, it is no longer I doing it, but it is, it is not myself that acts, but it is the sin principle which dwells in me, fixed and operating in my soul, not in his spirit. So I find it to be a law, rule of action of my being that when I want to do what is right and good, evil is ever present with me and I am subject to its insistent demands. For I endorse and delight in the law of God in my innermost self with all my na- with my na- new nature, but I discern in my body, bodily members, in the sensitive appetites and wills, it just went back. Why did it do that? Is it on the screen? Oh, what a deal. Someday I'm going to get into the 21st century. All right. So where was I? But I discern in my bodily members in the sensitive appetites and wills of the flesh, a different law, rule of action at war against the law of my mind, my reason and making me a prisoner to the law of sin that dwells in my bodily organs in the sensitive appetites and wills of the flesh. You know, if you read this, it, it's making the same points I am. It said, not in the sin, um, not in your new nature. And it talks about in the bodily parts and organs and things like this. So I believe that this is bearing it out. Next verse, verse 24 says, Oh, unhappy and piti- pitiable and wretched man that I am, who will release and deliver me from the shackles of this body of death? Oh, thank God he will through Jesus Christ, the anointed one, our Lord. So then I of myself with the mind and heart serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So again, this is not saying that Christians are doomed to failure. It's just saying that if you don't depend on the spirit of God and who you are in the spirit, you're doomed to failure. You cannot please God in your flesh. And it says that right down here in Romans chapter eight. So I'm beginning to get into that, but let me make this point that, you know, the Holy Spirit prior to Romans chapter eight is only mentioned one time in the book of Romans before chapter eight. And that's Romans chapter five, verse five, where it says that the Holy Spirit, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. That's the only time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the seventh chapter. 
of the book of Romans, there's only one time that the word spirit, small s, was used. And that's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about, uh, that's in Romans chapter 7. And I believe it was verse 5. Let me look this up or somewhere around here. Or maybe it's verse 6. It's somewhere close. Yeah, in verse 6, but now are we delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And that's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the word spirit also means mental disposition or attitude. When you say that they have a great school spirit, you aren't talking about that they're demon possessed or something. It's talking about their attitude. Man, they got a great spirit about them. And so my point is in the book of Romans chapter seven, where it's talking about all this frustration, I want to do good, but I can't. The Holy Spirit is never mentioned. It wasn't mentioned all the way up to the eighth chapter, but in the eighth chapter where it is talking about absolute victory and total victory, which is in direct contrast to what was said in Romans chapter seven, the word spirit referring to the Holy Spirit is used 21 times. So if you're paying attention, you could tell just by this, that Romans chapter seven is trying to describe the futility of trying to please God in your own self. You just can't do it. You have to rely upon the Holy Spirit. You need to let the Holy Spirit energize you. You know, when you're praying, you need to let the Holy Spirit energize your praying. Over in Romans chapter eight, it says that the Holy, that the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit, that we are the sons of God, or excuse me, where is that? Let me look at this. Romans chapter eight, verse 26. I misquoted that. Likewise, the spirit also helpeth our infirmities for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. And if you look these words up in the Greek, I'm not going to try and pronounce this, but it's a long compound word in the Greek where it says that he makes intercession for us. And it literally means to take hold together with us. Now that's significant because the Holy Spirit doesn't just intercede for you without you and you are ineffective without the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans chapter seven is saying. But when you start praying and draw on the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit takes hold together with you and makes intercession for you. And we know that that's effective. You can't pray on your own. You need to be led by the Spirit. You know, I was with Oral Roberts right before he uh, died and he taught us on praying in the Spirit for about an hour or something like that, maybe 45 minutes. And he was just talking about things and he was telling about Billy Graham. They had become friends and Billy Graham asked him to pray. And Billy Graham and Ruth were there and and, uh, Oral and Evelyn. And I think there was somebody else there. And anyway, they all went around and prayed and Oral was the last one to pray. And he says, I can't pray until I've prayed in the Holy Spirit. I don't know how to pray without the Holy Spirit. And so he just started speaking in tongues right in front of Billy and Ruth Graham. And he prayed in tongues and then he prayed in English. And Billy Graham said, man, I have never had anybody pray for me before. And Oral said, you've got millions of people to pray for you. And he says, not like that. 
And every time Billy Graham got around Oral Roberts, he says, please pray in me, pray over me in tongues. There's a difference when you pray in tongues and when you let the Holy Spirit flow through you. And yet there's so many people that they think prayer is just coming and spewing out all of your griping and complaining. God, I'm angry. I'm upset. And they think that this is, you know, this is really good prayer. What it says, griping and complaining. It's total unbelief. You cannot pray just on your own. You need to be energized and led by the Holy Spirit. You can't do anything on your own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And see, this is the contrast between Romans chapter seven. It's describing a person, even a good person who's wanting to live for God, but you can't do it in yourself. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so then Romans chapter eight is just full of all kinds of victory because it's constantly talking about the Holy Spirit and who you are in Christ. So in Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore, the word therefore refers back to all of these previous things. When you see the word therefore, you gotta look and see what it's there for. It means it's dependent on what was just said. So because he had just said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? And then he turns around and he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, I can do this. I can overcome the flesh. I can't serve God in my flesh, but I can overcome the flesh by the power of the spirit. So therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You know, I hate to even bring this up. I'd just like to go into talking about all these awesome things. But real quickly, let me say this, because many people just totally void the benefit of what is being said right here because of this phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And they say, well, there is condemnation. God is going to condemn you. God's not pleased with you if you aren't walking in the spirit. That's not what this is saying. There is no, I could say it this way. There is no condemnation from God to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. There is no condemnation ever, period. But is there no condemnation if you walk in the flesh? Well, there isn't from God, but there is from people. You could go out there and say, well, man, I just heard a guy talk about that. There's no condemnation and God's not mad at me. So I can go out and rob a bank or do anything because God's not going to condemn me. Well, he won't. He'll love you. And as you sit in your prison cell, he'll be right there with you, telling you that you are the righteousness of God in your spirit. But there is condemnation. You will be caught. You will be tried. You will be humiliated. You will be sentenced. You will be condemned. There is condemnation, but it's not from God. So I say this so that you won't lose the benefit of this. This isn't saying that God won't condemn you if you'll just walk in the spirit and not be deserving of condemnation. No, that God's not going to condemn you at all. But if you walk in the flesh, there is condemnation. And these verses will bring that out. So in verse uh, two, he says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now notice again, he's making a contrast. Romans chapter seven was talking about not your spirit part, not the, you know, not in your spirit. But the carnal part of you, it was condemned. It's incapable. It's not sufficient to overcome and live the Christian life. But the law of the spirit, capital S, of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. What is the law of sin and death? 
The law that when you sin, you get death. The law that when you sin, you get Deuteronomy 1, I mean 28, 1 through 14 instead of Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. Or I said that wrong. You get Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68 instead of Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 15. Deuteronomy is listing the blessings for keeping the law and the curses if you don't keep it. The first 14 verses are all of the blessings that come upon you if you keep the law and live holy. And 15 through 68 are all of the curses. And so the law of sin and death is that if you sin, you get the curses instead of all of the blessings. Christ redeemed us from that. He made us free from this. You are free from the Old Testament law and its punishment that goes along with your failures. And that is a mouthful right there. If we really believe that, you would have boldness towards God. The only thing that Satan ever had on you is sin. And if you understand that you are been set free from the law of sin and death and that there's no condemnation to you, then you'd be bold as a lion. Proverbs chapter 28, verse one, the righteous are bold as a lion. When you understand that you are righteous, you could charge hell with a water pistol (laughs) because you know God's for you. You know, it's like the uh, point that Barry made the very first service that if you know that your team wins, if you know the final score, if you were guaranteed God's power, you would be a lot bolder. You would take more risk. You would do things. But see, most of us don't flow in the spirit and who we are in Christ. We live out here in our carnal man. We know our weaknesses. We know our failures and we don't have confidence. But when you start realizing you've been set free from this law of sin and death and on the inside, you're nothing but a winner. You're an absolute winner. And if you could see that and understand it, you would be bold as a lion. In verse three, it says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. That's talking about your non-born again part through your physical stuff. In that what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sent in his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh that the righteousness of God might be, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The law was weak through your flesh. You couldn't keep it. But what you couldn't do, God accomplished through his son and he judged sin in the flesh. And it's the flesh of his son it's talking about. God doesn't judge you. He judged Jesus. He put all of your punishment upon Jesus. God has satisfied his wrath. You know, when you go to talking about the gospel and grace, some people think that this is just God turning the other way and ignoring your sin. And God saying, well, I'm not going to hold people's sins against them anymore. I've just changed my standard. I'm light on sin. That's not what grace is. Jesus paid for your sin. He judged sin in the flesh of Jesus Jesus suffered every bit of sin that you and I and every person who has ever or will ever live on this planet deserved. Jesus took all of that sin and all of that wrath into his physical body and into his soul. 
He became sin. He was separated from his father. It says 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that Jesus became sin for us. He didn't just suffer a little taste. He became sin. He became adulterer, homosexual, liar, thief, murderer. He became those things, not because he committed it, but God put our sins upon him and Jesus suffered for our sins. Our sins are paid for. I'm not saying that grace is God looking the other way and saying, well, I'm just going to act like you never did it. No, he's paid for it. He has paid for it. There is nothing left to pay. Jesus paid more than you owed. His payment was greater than the debt. You know, it'd be like if I went up to buy something and it cost a hundred dollars and I only had $50 and I I wasn't able to pay for it. And yet if somebody else walks up and says, here, here's a million dollars, I'll pay for it. Man, that's what Jesus did. Jesus paid more than what we owed. And there is no reason for you to feel like you still have to be paying something. Our sins have been paid for. And for me to say that I am absolutely free from sin and that God isn't holding sin against me. Some people think, well, boy, you're making light of sin. If you don't look at it that way, I think you're making light of what Jesus did. You're saying that what Jesus paid wasn't enough, that you also have to suffer. That's not true. Jesus paid for our sins. Jesus did it so completely that there is no anger left in God for you. All of his anger was placed upon Jesus. God is not upset. He's not imputing sin unto you. He imputed all of that sin unto his son. And there is no wrath, no judgment, no condemnation from God towards you, period. If you've made Jesus your Lord, if you've accepted that and you've got this new nature, God is in love with you as much as he's in love with Jesus. I forgot who that was. It might've been Arthur or one of them that said, read those scriptures about, I've given them your love, even as you have loved me in John chapter 17. God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. And some of you are just shaking your head. How could that be? Because see, you're looking at your physical self. You know your actions and you know your thoughts, but God is looking at your spirit. God is a spirit and he deals with you in the spirit. And in the spirit, your old sin nature is gone. And now you are, it is the spirit of his son sent into your heart. You are one spirit with the Lord. You are completely brand new. You are as holy and pure in your spirit as Jesus is. And because of that, God sees you just as he sees Jesus. He would no more fail to answer your prayer than he would fail to answer the prayer of Jesus. If you are praying in faith, drawing on who you are in Christ. Man, these are awesome statements. In that fourth verse, I quoted it, but look, it says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. You can't fulfill the righteousness of the law, the right standing of the law in your actions, but through faith, you can believe on Jesus and he imparts unto you his righteousness and he makes you the righteousness of God. And in your spirit, you are as righteous and holy and pure as if you had kept every single precept of the law because it's the righteousness of Jesus and Jesus did keep every precept of the law and he gave you his righteousness. Again, I refer to second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. It says, for he, 
God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says, Jesus is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus has become my righteousness. You know, Isaiah 64, 6, I believe it is, says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And man, that was a scripture that I was taught, I embraced, and I just thought all of my righteousness is as filthy rags. If you're talking about my self-righteousness, my own actions, that's true. But now that I'm born again, it's wrong for me to say all of my righteousness is filthy rags. That was an Old Testament scripture. Jesus is now my righteousness and Jesus isn't a filthy rag. For a Christian to say all of my righteousness is as filthy rags, you got to qualify it the way Paul did and say, I'm talking about in my flesh because you are now the righteousness of God. You're as holy and pure as Jesus is. You're as beloved as Jesus is. You're as anointed as Jesus is. You're as powerful as Jesus is. You have the mind of Christ. First Corinthians chapter two, verse 16. As Jesus is right now in heaven, so are you in this world. You're identical to him. First Corinthians six seventeen. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. And that means a singular one to the exclusion of all others. You are identical to Jesus in your spirit and the righteousness of the law is yours. You are as holy and pure as you can get. For a person to pray and say, oh God, make me righteous. You either don't know what happened to you at salvation or you aren't born again. If you're born again, you are the righteousness of God. Ephesians 4, 24 says, put on the new man, which is talking about that born again part, which after God was created in righteousness and true holiness. You are righteous and truly holy. In verse five, it says, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. You know, I wish I had more time. I don't. So anyway, I'm just going to say this. You'll have to go study it on your own. But in Romans chapter eight, there's a distinction between being in the flesh and after the flesh in the spirit and after the spirit. Those are small words, but they mean big things. If you are born again, you cannot be in the flesh. That is describing a position where you live. It's your nature. You are not in the flesh, but a Christian can be after the flesh. And a non-Christian can't be in the spirit. They can walk after the spirit. They could be led. They could see somebody else do something good. God could speak to them and they could respond to the Holy Spirit and do something good. They could walk after the spirit occasionally, but they can't be in the spirit. The only way you can get in the spirit is to be born again and changed in your nature. But when you get born again, you are in the spirit. That is who you are. That is your position And you ought to walk in the spirit. But sadly, a lot of Christians walk after the flesh. So keep that in mind as you read this in verse five, they that are after the flesh, that's talking about uh, people who are walking in this sinful part of them, do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. How can you tell whether you are after the flesh or after the spirit? 
What do you think on? What's your focus? That's just as simple as you can get. If you are spiritually minded, matter of fact, that goes on to say this. Let me just keep reading. In verse six, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. How you tell whether you are in the spirit or in the flesh after the spirit or after the flesh is by where is your focus? What are you focused on? And it says to be carnally minded, the word carnal, you know, a lot of people think of this as being just terrible, sinful things. A person who's a whoremonger, a liar, a thief or whatever, and that's carnal. Well, that is carnal, but you can be good and be carnal. All all sin is carnality, but not all carnality is sin. Over in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, lay aside every weight and the sin, which does so easily beset us. Sin is not the only problem we have. There's a lot of things we do that are carnal that weigh us down and hurt us and it produces death. The word carnal here is uh, a word that literally is talking about your flesh as stripped of skin. It's what the word carnal, we get the word carny. Like chili con carne comes from the same Greek word and it means chili with meat. The word carnal is basically just talking about meat. It's talking about flesh. So when you say somebody's carnally minded, you're calling them a meathead. That's what you're doing. So when it says to be carnally minded is death. It, it, of course, all sin, and if you're out here living in some perversion, that produces death. But did you know just being carnal, just being occupied with the physical realm exclusively is death. Now this needs a little bit of interpretation because God wants you to think, use your brain for something besides a hat rack. You know what? If you're driving me someplace, I want you to be carnal to a degree. I don't want you to close your eyes and just be worshiping the Lord and have your mind on the Lord. You need to use your five senses and focus on what you're doing. Drive. Man, I've been in planes where the pilot crawled up in a fetal position and said, my God, we're going to die. We're going to die. And I had to fly the plane. Man, I don't like that. I like somebody who's got some carnal knowledge and knows what they're doing. So we all have to be carnal to a degree to function. You can't drive, you can't write, you can't. So there's nothing wrong with a degree of carnality, but to be controlled, to be focused on it, to be dominated by carnal things. It doesn't have to be sinful things. Just let it be carnal things. It will harden your heart towards God. And according to this verse, it will produce death. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And I can make a million applications, but in the context of what he's been talking about, this is talking about if you are living in the flesh and trying to serve God out of your own ability and looking at your own resources, that is carnally minded. 
But to be spiritually minded is where you recognize you are now born again, that your old nature is gone. You are a new person and you are dealing with all of the challenges that come into your life from the spirit man, from your born again self empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you are spiritually minded, all that produces is life and peace. If you are carnally minded, it doesn't have to be evil minded, but you're just trying to live the Christian life out of your own ability and power. It produces death. That's the point that he's making. Man, that's powerful. I have people come to me all the time and say, I'm doing everything right. And yet I've got death. They may not use that word, but I've got my sickness, my poverty, nothing's working. And they're telling me, that you could be spiritually minded and still have death. That's not what the word says. I'm sorry to differ with you, but if I have to choose between believing you and believing the word, I'm going to believe the word. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's all it comes to. You know, if I want to go see what you planted in your garden, I don't have to be there when you plant it. All I got to do is see what's growing. I can tell you what you planted in your garden. And I don't have to go home with you and I don't have to listen to your old story. Just tell me what's going on in your life. And I can tell you if you've been spiritually minded or if you've been carnally minded. And again, it doesn't mean that you've been sinful or rebellious, but you've been occupied with the flesh primarily. You've been trying to do things in your own strength and in your own power. When you push over and understand who you are in Christ and what he's done for you, you are spiritually minded. And I tell you, it just releases life and peace through you. Physical healing will come. Deliverance will come. Prosperity will come. Joy and peace will come when you're spiritually minded. You know, again, this is andiology. I can't show you the exact verse on this, but it's in my opinion that if you are focused on who you are in Christ And thinking on that, I believe it's absolutely impossible for you to be depressed. A person who is depressed is a person who is carnally minded because depression is death. If you start thinking about what Jesus has done for you, who you are in Christ, that man, my old man is gone. I am identical to Jesus. I've got all of his life and nature. There's nothing to be depressed about. Man, you can get yourself happy in a hurry doing that kind of stuff. I'm telling you, these are some powerful, powerful keys that we're dealing with right here. The Apostle Paul is giving us the key to how to release this life on the inside of us. You've got to know this, that your old man is dead. That you are born again and that you now are free from the law of sin and death. That all of your sin was judged in Jesus And that you now, it's just a matter of where do you focus your attention? Are you going to still be looking at yourself and trying to just white knuckle it and live for God in your own power? Are you going to recognize who you are in Christ and start drawing on the spirit that's on the inside of you? Are you going to be like the apostle Paul that says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet. It's not me. It's Christ living in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the son of God. I know that the reverse standard version says faith in the son of God, but the King James says I'm living by the faith of the son of God. Galatians 2 20. He was, he was not living on his own human faith. There is a human faith. But there is a supernatural God kind of faith that just 
I mean, it defies logic. It goes beyond what you think. You can operate in the faith of the Son of God. Amen? Let me use one last example and I'll quit. I've got to quit. Man, there's just so much to share. But you know, when I was raised as a kid, they took a chair and set it on the stage and they said, uh, if somebody asks you to sit in this chair, it's faith to sit in this chair because you've never sat in it before. So they used that as an example of faith. They also used it as faith to drive through an intersection on a green light because you can't see the other side. You don't know if there's a red light or not. So you're doing it by faith. They said it was faith to get into an airplane and fly in an airplane because you don't know what makes an airplane fly. You don't know the pilot. So you're using faith. And they taught that that was faith. But see, that is a human faith because it's based on sense knowledge. If I had a chair up here that only had three legs instead of four and the thing was, you know, looking like it could fall over, you wouldn't sit in a chair like that because your senses would tell you it didn't work. It's actually a more appropriate illustration of a God kind of faith to say, come sit in this chair right here because there isn't a chair here. You can't see one. See, now that would be a God kind of faith because you're believing for something that you can't see. Romans chapter four, verse 17 says, God calls those things that be not as though they were. Abraham believed in things that he couldn't see and against hope he believed in hope. God's kind of faith, see, uses a supernatural spirit thing. It's not based on physical things. To drive through an intersection and say that that's faith, that's a human faith that is based on circumstances. You've been taught that the other side is red and you are just assuming it. But if there was no uh, light up there, or say, for instance, you know, that uh, you see somebody coming and you're just assuming you're having faith that they're going to stop. But if your senses told you something different, you couldn't drive through an intersection like that with human faith because it's based on what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. To fly in a plane, you're flying in something that you can see. You know that that company has to be able to maintain a safety record or nobody would fly with them. So you've got physical evidence to base your faith on. But when you're operating in God's kind of faith, you have to believe for things that you can't see. You can't see God. You can't see the devil. So there is a difference between a God kind of faith. It's a gift and it comes from the spirit and a human faith. And many people are trying to serve God with only human faith. They're operating in the flesh and they cannot please God. You've got to start drawing on the spirit on the inside of you in order to be able to see these things happen. And the good news is that the spirit part of us is awesome and able to believe anything. But man, it takes some renewing of the mind and you're gonna have to be focused on the things of the spirit. What is being focused on the things of the spirit? Jesus said in John six sixty three, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So to be spiritually minded is to be word minded. You need to get into the word. You need to take these things that we've been talking about, not only me, but all of these instructors. You need to take these things and meditate on it. I promise you, you didn't get everything that was said. You need to go back over it. You need to study it. And you need to focus your attention on it. And if you are spiritually minded, focused on the word of God, all you'll get is life and peace. You don't get death. You don't get condemnation and failure when you're spiritually minded. Amen? Amen. That's awesome.
And you know, tonight, let me just say this, that if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I know I've given an invitation for this every service, but it's just paramount. Again, in the seventh chapter, total discouragement, inability. How can I please God? Oh, wretched man that I am. The Holy Spirit's not mentioned. The eighth chapter is absolute victory. There's no condemnation. We are more than conquerors on and on. And there, the spirit is mentioned 21 times. If you are trying to live the Christian life in your own steam and power, you will fail. It's impossible. It's beyond human ability. You have to have the Holy Spirit come and energize everything that you do. You've got to be dominated and controlled by the Spirit. And if there's anybody here who hasn't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you know what? You can even receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and still walk after the flesh. You don't have to be controlled by it. But if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, you definitely need to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. But even if you have received the Spirit, then you need to learn how to yield to the Spirit. You know, this uh, CD set that uh, Gary gave away of Wendell's tonight is about the Holy Spirit and how to yield and how to follow the Spirit. Man, we need those kind of things. You need that kind of teaching. It's not just about saying 20 years ago, I got the Holy Spirit. Are you filled today? I remember a service with Catherine Kuhlman at the Full Gospel Businessman in Dallas, Texas. 5,000 people there and all of the preachers and everybody on the stage and they were all talking about, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit 20 years. I've been baptized 30 years and they just talked about this. Catherine Kuhlman got up and says, you've been baptized 20 and 30 and 40 years and hadn't been full of the Holy Spirit a day since. That's the way she started her message. And there's a lot of truth to that. You not only have to receive this power, but then you need to walk in it. And speaking in tongues is just like flipping a switch. It turns on this dynamo of the Holy Spirit. When you start speaking in tongues, you start releasing the power of God. If you don't have that, you need it. And we would love to be able to minister to you. Is there anybody in here tonight who doesn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues and you'd like to receive? Anybody, if that's you, I want you to raise your hand. We've been praying for people every service, but man, I'd be surprised if every person in here has already got it. I can't see them. Oh, here's a hand. I'm sorry. I missed you. (laughs) Praise God. Here's some others. You know, maybe I just can't see with these lights in my eyes, but you know, if you would, if you haven't yet received the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, or if you've already received it, but if you don't use this gift of speaking in tongues, you ought to let someone pray with you and get this thing fired up and start walking in this because you have to have the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to succeed. It takes the power of God. Amen. I'd like to invite our prayer ministers to come down here and they're going to be here to pray with you. If you need to make Jesus your personal savior, we want to give you an invitation to come.